First, I want to uh, thank the committee for, and I always do this at the end because I'm more thankful at the end than I am in the beginning for inviting me. It's been quite a adventure getting here. Uh, I called Marbella about a month or so ago and said, don't worry about me, I'll get there. And she said, fine. So I started trying to call her to tell her when I was going to get here, and there was no answer. So I thought, well, what if they canceled me? Because I didn't know anybody else. But I said I'd show up, and so I finally got in touch with her and told me she'd been in the hospital. But that somebody would pick me up. I said, Marilla, I have two big suitcases I've been gone from home for a while. And I have, I don't have any other baby. She said, well, that's okay. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so I got off the plane, and I'm looking for someone, and I see Mary peeking over the banister. A baby, I'm sorry. And she said, uh, and I knew it was her. And so we talked, and we were walking toward the baggage, and I said, I, by the way, I have uh, <laughs> some luggage. And she said, yes, I know. So <laughs> we got to the luggage. And I have these huge big suitcases. And she said, you really do have big suitcases. <laughs> I was too embarrassed to bring all of the bags into the hotel so I just have one bag in the hotel. But we got here. And I'm grateful. Well, all of my life, I've always been in a hurry to get through doing whatever I was doing so I could do something else because it was going to be better. I never liked what I was doing. You know, I just knew that there was something missing, and just as soon as I got through doing this, well, then it was going to be okay, and, and I was going to be happy. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. I started this before I started to sue, and I started to sue when I was five years old. I just knew that my life would be different. Now, how I knew that, I don't know. I don't remember, quote, being that unhappy as a child. I just was just contented. You know, I, I wanted something different than what I had. I started to school, was happy for a little while, and then I began to see the big kids. And they were, they were doing things that I wanted to do. And I wanted to be with them, so it was going to be better when I got there. When I got there, it was going to be better when I got in high school, and it was going to be better when I got out of high school. And, and that's the way, you know, I remember that. It was just always going to be better after what? Tomorrow, it was going to be better. I, um, I lived in a let's pretend world. I remember racing home from high school to listen to a program called Let's Pretend on the radio. Now, I know I don't look that old. That was before television, but I did listen. And I believed all of the things that they said in these fairy tales. And they said uh, they got married and lived happily ever after. That was my next goal. It was going to be better when I did that. Now, I'm only 16 years old, and this is during World War II, and I uh, decide that I'm going to marry this cute little sailor that lives down the street, and that's home on leave, and I did. And he 
went away to war, and I, uh, just before we knew all these great things to, uh, keep from having babies, and I, of course, immediately got pregnant because it was going to be better when I did that. And I'm in nursing school, and I, you know, have a child. And I remember they brought that baby to me, and I'm not quite 17 years old. I'm just blocking about two, three weeks being 17. And they handed me this child, and he looked like a little old man, you know. And I remember looking at him, and I think, and holding him, and I think, what in the hell am I supposed to do with you? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? Now, my confidence was already beginning to waver a little bit with myself because people were saying things like, oh, she's so young. You know, poor little thing. What is she going to do with this child? Now, I've almost finished nursing school, and I'm at, I'm at a high school, and I almost finished nursing school, you know, but I'm so young, you know, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and my parents are saying things like, um, you better take good care of that baby because they will take them away from you. Well, I don't know who they are, but I didn't want them to take that baby. So I'm going to be this wonderful mother, but I don't know what to do with him when I get him and I look at him. And I remember that I'm sitting there holding him, and I think, it'll be better. I remember telling him this. It'll be better when you can talk. When you can talk. When you go to school. When you get out of school. When you're in college. Because I didn't know my reality of things, of ha- having to deal with that. I found no, really no joy in that. It was just that I had to do it perfect. Well, his father came home, and we uh, got an apartment, and we found out something real fast. We didn't like each other, much less love each other. But in my family, you can shoot somebody, you can go to the nut house. You can do most anything, but you don't get a divorce. Especially when you marry and run off and get married like I did. Because you made your bed and you're going to lie. No matter what, you've got your to bed and you're going to do this. So when everything's wonderful and things are going so great along those lines, what do you do? You have another baby. And that's what we did. Another little boy. And he had only worked in a grocery store or something, so he had to go back to college, and I'm working, and, and he goes to school, and we scream and yell and carry on like somebody said, quite that. You know, I guess that's what we did. But we didn't know how to do anything different. And along about this time, somebody said to me, you know, Elwood, what's wrong with you? You need to go to church and get saved and let God run your life. So I said, oh, okay. So there's a little new bed. So, you know, so that's time to visit. So I went to church and I got saved and I started telling God what to do. Now I need to tell you how I went to church. The weekends was always the worst time. I hated the weekends because you see, during the week I could go to the hospital and work and I became a workaholic a long time before I knew what that word even meant because I didn't have to go home. 
But on the weekends, I had to be at home. And, uh, and I, I, could, I didn't know how to cope. And so I would do this, let's pretend to you know, Let's pretend that I live in this beautiful house with a white picket fence. My husband adores me. My children are perfect. And everything is just wonderful. And I could build in that dream. And I would be, you know, my mind would go wild in it. And, uh, and I would do okay. You know, I had to go to get my hair done, and I had to get the clothes off, and I had to go to the grocery store, and, uh, and especially to get everything ready to go to church on Sunday. Because the church I went to, you only went there to see what I was wearing, or the children was wearing, or, you know, I had to make this big impression. If one of the children came in and said, Mommy, she started screaming. You know, I just would scream. For no apparent, and I think to myself, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you screaming? But they brought me out of my dream. And if who came in, I really did go crazy. I mean, I just couldn't understand it. And then on Sunday morning, I'd get up, come down the hall, work the kids out of the bed, cram breakfast down their throat, get the boys dressed, and my little girl, I, oh, by the way, we had another, in the midst of all this, we had another baby, little girl. And she had long blonde hair. And, you know, and I had to put her on these thousands of petticoats, you know, and brush that hair, and she's screaming and yelling, and then I'm pulling, and I'm hurting, and she's itching, and I'm hitting her in the head with a brush. Getting her all dressed, and I remember cramming her little hands down in those white gloves, and Taking her in and sitting her on the couch with the boys and saying, Oh, God, God, sit on this girl and don't get messed up. We're going to hurt. You know, and then she'd get up. Now, I want to tell you something. We could have our best fight on Sunday morning. We could say the most vile things to each other. We could say the most horrible curse words that you've ever heard. I don't even know where they come from. I think we saved up for Sunday morning, and we're yelling, screaming, cussing, cussing with each other. And it could be, they didn't get to the We get in the, tur- uh, in the car, we go to church, you know, screaming, yelling, cussing all the way. We went to this big church, and we just beat on it, and we get the car, and get out, hold the baby's hand, walk up, you know. I taught Sunday school. All good out and on Sunday school. That's what's the matter with our kids today, folks. When your life is in hell, you know, you teach about how much Jesus loves you. I say in the choir, we'd leave church, take hands with the teachers, get in the car, and pick up right where we left off. And the kids are saying, Mommy, Daddy, don't do that. You know, let's don't do that. You know, don't do that. Never one time, I promise, never once did I thought, think that I was hurting my children. I never, you know what, I didn't think about my children at all. I don't know what I thought about my children. It never dawned on me the effect that that type of behavior would have. I was totally insane. And that, you know, and I just 
past that right on down like it would be. Say a cookie or fruit or something. You passed it right on. Well, you did that for 23 years. <laughs> and I got sick and tired. God never did anything I told him to, and he certainly didn't do anything I told him to, and I said, that's it. Now, I didn't want a divorce <clears throat> because I didn't want to be a divorcee. And so I uh, said, we, I was out of labor separation with a public anymore, but um, that's what we had, and um, this doesn't really mean a whole lot. And uh, I went into a different field in the hospital. The boys... My youngest son was a senior in high school, and my oldest son was a senior in college. And uh, my daughter was beginning to start uh, the six-week difference between the last two, and she was going into junior high, and uh, I give up. I just give up. I didn't want anything else to do with that. And I hated God, and I hated man in that order. And I went into a different field in the hospital and became a department head of that too. And really got into my work. Uh, I was, um, you know, I want to say this. I was not always that unhappy with my children growing up. I loved my children a lot. And we had some good times. You know, we had some good times, especially the, the children and I. And I'm grateful for that today. And I just want to kind of throw that in. But I went into a different field and I began to work and my daughter, you know, and I was happy with her and we had a lot of fun together. She and I did. And we uh, um, did things together. When she was a senior in high school, I still went into a little different field in the hospital. And uh, this is what was going on with me when Jim came into my life. Now, Jim was different than the, most of the men that I knew. He uh, was kind and attentive, and he listened to me talk, and he was very helpful in the business that I was in. And besides that, he had the most gorgeous blue eyes that you've ever seen in your life. And I was impressed. But Jim um, never really said anything personal about himself, uh, what was going on with him, and I never did with him. On Christmas Eve of 1967, he brought me a very romantic Christmas present. Uh, it was a of feet. And he said, as he was leaving my office, he said, you know, I think I've fallen in love with you. And the most romantic thing that Jim had ever said to me was, I have coffee in the cafeteria. Hospital cafeterias are not romantic. You know that. But he turned around and walked out of my office and out of the hospital and left. He called on me every three weeks. He'd come back in three weeks and he said, Hi! Never mentioned, never looked like he had ever said anything. And I'm looking all the time. In April of that year, I said to him, Jim, how come you told me that? How come you said that you had fallen in love with me? 
She said, you know, for the first time in my life, I do believe that I love another human being. She said, I want to tell you something. I'm not divorced. My divorce is not final. I'm an alcoholic, and I go to Alcoholics Anonymous seven days a week and twice on Sunday. And all I have to offer you is an affair. And my sponsor won't let me have one of those damn things. Well, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do here because I used to switch this over to Jim, but most of you have heard Jim and you know his story. Uh, we did go to see his sponsor. Uh, we did talk to him, and that was very strange. That was a really, really um, different experience for me. <laughs> we did go, and uh, he told Jim, you know, to let me alone, and that I needed to go to Al-Anon, and that I needed to see, because, see, Jim had made a commitment that, you know, he, he told me, he said, Elvis, if I don't have this program, I don't have a life. And I don't have anything to offer you. You know, this is my way of life. Because I have to have it. You know, maybe you need to go and see, and see what you want. Well, I went, you know, I mean, I, after the sponsor, I'm trying to get mixed up here because I, this is usually Jim's story. But we went to, we, Jim told me how to go to Al-Anon. He said, you go to Al-Anon and you go in there and you tell him your name is Eloise. And if you're going to marry an alcoholic, and don't tell him another damn thing. <laughs> so I went to Al-Anon, and I told him my name was Eloise, and I didn't tell him another, and I was going to marry an alcoholic, and didn't tell him another damn thing. We had five meetings before I should not marry the alcoholic. I didn't tell him he was sober, for one thing, and another thing I didn't tell him it was good weed. But anyway, we, uh, finally went across town. I said, went back and I said, hey Jim, this is not working. You know, something's going on. So he, we went to a, across town and we went to a open AA meeting. And the very first meeting that I attended at Don College Phenomenon, there was this lovely lady up behind the podium, just like I am, and she was talking about food. And she talked about resentment. You see, this is the language of the heart. And only those of us that know this language can understand. So I know I'm supposed to be here. But she talked about resentment. She talked about reliving things over and over again that they made her feel physically ill. Oh my God. I have lived that way all of my life. To play that thing over and over again till it makes my stomach hurt. She talked about fear. The feeling of impending doom. I knew if I ever stopped this huge black thing, whatever it was, it was going to get me. And I'd never escape. She talked about all of the things that we talk about here. On the way home, I said, Jim, do you have to drink to be an alcoholic? 
He said, yeah, I think that's one of his <laughs> But for the first time in my life, I identified with another human being and the things that they were saying. Now, this is my opinion, okay, and I have the right to have an opinion. I think that when the alcoholic loses his desire, when God takes the desire for booze or pills or the chemical or whatever it is, I think we're more alive than we are different. I think we have a living problem. I, um, when I got married, and I was wonderfully happy for a few months, (laughs) and then I realized something. I knew that everything that had ever been wrong with me in my entire life, I had crammed in these huge trunks and brought them right into this new marriage. I still had a let's pretend idea. You see, I knew that if another person really loved me and cared about me, I'd be okay. Do you know what love is? Love is a good and precious gift from God. And I knew that another human being felt that way about me. But I also knew that if I didn't get rid of the things that was wrong with me, it wouldn't have worked. Right after this, I was sitting on the bed one morning talking on the telephone, and I heard Jim in the bathroom. And I thought he called me, and I excused myself and went to the bathroom and pushed the door open. And Jim's on his knees praying. And he said, God, I feel like a kind of a biscuit to me. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Good Southern Baptists don't talk to God that way. I went back and I told my friend, do you know what Jim's old God? He said, no. He told her, but I wouldn't tell about that. He said, you know, that's kind of honest. Jim came out of the bathroom and he's getting dressed and he's dancing around and he's happy and, and I'm looking at him and I said, Jim, how come you told God you felt like a son of a bitch? And he says, they tell me I have to tell God everything. Because you see, no human power can change that. Only God can change that. I heard that, folks. I heard that. I started going to a group, a two-hour group, on Wednesday morning in Houston, Texas. The first hour is discussion, and the second hour is success. The very first night, the very first morning I was there, this lady came in, and she was totally devastated by the disease of alcoholism. I don't know, I think her husband was in jail, and her kids were crazy, and, you know, all the things that are wrong in an alcoholic marriage. And a judge had sent her there. And uh, he said, 
She kept saying, Help me. I have to do something. Tell me something to do. I have to do something. And she's crying. And there's about 25 or 30 women there. And she just keeps repeating this over and over again. And all of a sudden, I found, I felt this magic that you call love. The love of God began to encircle that room. And nothing was said. She was the only one. But all of a sudden, she got quiet. And then I heard her. She said, you can let go and let God. Now, I've been hearing that, but I'm thinking, let go and let God do that. Because I've been attending meetings like that. And then I heard somebody else say, you can let go and let God do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And boom, all of a sudden, the light began to come off. And I began to hear things. You know, in our preamble, we say, take what you can use and store the rest. You may need it in the future. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I had a lot of stuff stored up there. Because I don't believe that you can come to this program. By the way, I, since I have been in this program since October of 1969, I attend at least three Al-Anon meetings a week. Plus about two open LA meeting. Al-Anon is the person that goes to Al-Anon and practices the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've done that from the very beginning. And that doesn't include the talk that we go around and give. That means going to the Al-Anon program. And I had stood a lot. Because see, I think we can just come in here and sit. And things begin to happen. You begin to pick. And all of a sudden, these things that I heard began to take hold of me. And I began to see. And I began to understand. For the first time in my life, I began to understand something of God. The second hour of that meeting was two steps. And we were on the very the first step, the two steps. And it said that we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Let me tell you something. I'm powerless over alcohol, but I'm powerless over me. I'm powerless over the things that I think, over the things that I do, over my reaction to things. I'm powerless over that. When I don't know how to do different I'm a dangerous person to be around. Because I can destroy myself and everything around me. I'm powerless. I'm the one that makes my life unmanageable. Not people, places, and things. I'm the one that does. I, it's me. It's an inside job. And when I'm separated from God, I don't do that. The second step says that we need to be, that we can be restored to sanity. I never had sanity. Sanity to me was same thinking. I never had sanity. Never. You know why I kept coming back to Al-Anon? You know one of the reasons that Al-Anon was real important to me? It's going to fall over. I heard a girl talk about 
trying to murder her husband. You know, that is a dumb way. But I listened to that. She bawled, oh, and leave, and she come home drenched, and she told me it was coughing, she kept whipping. Oh, it was awful. And everybody was roaring. It wasn't really funny to me. Because, you see, I think years thinking about what would happen if she got killed. I wouldn't even want to get killed because I had more money, you know. I thought about, you know, uh, uh, just dying of heart. I didn't care. You know, I spent, you know, and I would even think about what I was going to wear to the funeral, about what I was going to take, the, you know, what the kids was going to wear, you know, because I didn't think I could ever get out of that marriage. You know, I didn't think there was any way that I could get rid of that thing. Like I just didn't think that. And I'm saying all this around, and once again, a good Southern Baptist don't think that way. But I did. And when I heard her tell that, I thought, God, how can you tell that to me? You need it. You say that. But I kept watching her, and she was happy. And she was happy. And I, you know, and so I kept coming back out in the back and just sit and look at her. Because she was happy. And I, um, so I needed sanity. After I got through, when I got tired, sick and tired, I'm thinking about him dying, I got to thinking about me dying. And I've had over 25 years of nursing with that man. And I was thinking more about me dying than I was being serviced by the people. And I needed, I shared that around with the people. And so it said, you know, I needed to be restored to sanity. Now, I'm sure of some things that I was going to help this little thing along with my husband dying. One time I threw a knife at him, and it went right by the side of his head. Now, I had a good excuse for him. <laughs> it's not true. And it's just in the wall. And it's down on me. My God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Sometimes I threw a hammer. It went out to take right wing and hit the man next door. So I was not sane, folks. I was not sane. I don't mean to laugh. I, I hit my husband. He always left to work on cars and I hit him one time under the of the car and Hood came down and took his head and took him to the hospital where I'm at the part in here into the emergency room. This is what happened. And they laughed. I remember the first time I told that it was not funny. I was in tears. But they laughed like he did. And the healing started in me. The healing when we can laugh at the insanity in our own lives, we can do that. And by the way, Jim didn't know about all these kinds of things. <laughs> we, um, so I knew that I needed sanity. 
By the way, I have to say something, and I hope I don't offend any Alanons that are here. But I love Alcoholics Anonymous as much as I love Alanons. Alcoholics Anonymous has been as much in my recovery as Alanons. But my recovery is in Alanons. I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now read the big book for me. It was written for me. And I can identify with the insanity that is there. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It just has to be insane thinking and doing. I, uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that we take the first step with another person. And I had a lady that I had called my sponsor at that time. And I called her over. And she came over and told her I wanted to take the first first step. She said, fine, but let's let's let me ask you some things about God. She said, fine. She said, tell me about what you think God is. She said, listen, I can tell you what I think about God. And I proceeded to tell her. Finally, she stopped and she said, Elvis, if you know so damn much about God, how come your life for them through that? And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't answer. And she said, you know, I want to tell you something. Most of the things that you tell me about God, because she said, I'm a good Southern Baptist too, is what man said. You cannot take the Bible and show me all these things that you tell me that you think you know about God. They're not in there. It's what somebody has said behind you. And you have a very small God. And I knew that was true. Because see, nobody had ever really confronted me. You tell me what you think about God. Not what somebody else says, but what you think. We got on my knees, and I turned my life and my will over to God as I understood him that day. She left, and I began to cry. And I walked the floor, and I cried, and I cried. That was the first time in about 10 years or maybe 15 years that I had called. I remember the day that I said, I will never cry again. I will never cry again. When we turn off a gift that God gives us, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Because that gives me the ability to stress and to deny and to do things to me. And I cried. I had a very good friend that I called him. I said, I think I'm losing my mind. He knew me well. And he said, no, honey, those are the tears that you should have said years ago. I finally went in my bedroom and I knelt down by the bed and I said, God, can I have a <laughs> Now, I don't know really what that word is, what it really entails. I just know that it's a word people say when they, there's nothing left to say. And for me, it was disappointment. It was anger. It was hurt. It was all the things that I had been stepping for so many, many years. I wish that I could tell you that I got up and everything was wonderful and I never had another bad day. But as you know, that's the only thing we get started. 
But for the first time in my life, I could get started on me. I could look at me and my reactions and the things that I was doing to me and find out what I wanted out of my life. By the way, when my sponsor left that day, she said, Elvis, I want you to read the chapter to the agnostic. And call me and tell me those things. So I read the chapter to the agnostic, and I called her, and I told her what it said. She said, you missed it. Read it again. So I read it again, and I called her. She said, you missed it. Read it again. So I picked it up once again, and I started reading she called me back and she said, read very slowly. I called her back and I said, God is either everything or is nothing. She said, you got it. You got it. He's either everything or he's nothing. And that's true today. That's true today in my life. He's either everything or he's nothing. And I don't know about you, but for me, I found a loving God. I found out what he said about he, what things that he will do, things that he won't do. I had to go through the rock, rock pressure a lot. And I want to tell you something. I want to talk about my kids, and I want to talk about him, and I want to talk about the way that things are today. And you know, I don't want to do this because, you see, things are not real good in my life today. I like to come to you and tell you about things when everything is wonderful and things are going great. But you invited me here, and when I was praying today, I said, God, you know, what am I going to do? Am I just going through the same routine that I usually go through? Or am I going to tell you what's going on in my life today? I don't really want to do that. But you know what he said back to me? Now, God, what he said to me in the voice, it's that quiet, sweet voice that's within me. He said, I knew you were going to be here in Marbella Park. And I knew the things that were going on. I talk about my children. My oldest son was the one that was hurt the worst with my insanity that I lived with now former husband there, he was hurt the most. He had the most resentment and he was taking the longest for God to hear. And he's a Southern Baptist preacher. <laughs> but I'm grateful today that because I attended an Al Anon meeting on Tuesday morning with about 50 or 60 women, and we believe in prayer, real prayer. God answering prayer. I was going to visit him, and I said, I need for you to pray for me. But James and I had great expectations of each other, and you know what it says about expectations. And we loved each other dearly, but we didn't like each other. We couldn't really enjoy being with each other. But that morning that I was going to leave that night, we held hands, and somebody prayed. And you know what they said? God, I thought the Eloise to be exactly 
what you want her to be and to set things free. I was out in the house 30 minutes so he came and he knelt down beside of me and he said, Mama, and my children are grown children and they call me mother. Mother means you have a very important place in my life but mind your own business. Mama means I'll let you do things. I love being mama. And he hadn't called me mama in a long time. And he said, Mama, I want something here between us. I want us to love each other and to be free. And for that I'm grateful. He has a beautiful wife that calls me her best friend. That's a gift from God's sake. That's a gift from God. I'm not a mother man. I'm a good friend and I'm grateful. To have my beautiful granddaughter, my first granddaughter. I'd love to tell you about her, but I'm afraid you think I was just a pleasure grandmother. But she's lovely and she brings me lots of joy. My second son, I know has a drinking problem. I used to say I think. I know. You don't think I want to fix that, do you? <laughs> he tells me that he watches it and that he controls it and da 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 say okay. But the program has taught me to learn to learn for free and to set him free and for him to be what God wants him to be. He's an executive of the CLR company. And I really got upset and hate to tell you this, but I thought he was going to lose his job and I was really wanting to get him so to get it. I let go of that. He has my one and only grandson that I think is wonderful. He's everything I ever wanted in a grandson and more too. He also has a lovely little girl. And I'm very sad and very grateful for them. My daughter taught me what Alanon was about. She met this old one. Long hair, pot smoking, yucky old boy in college. And he liberated her. Whatever the hell that means. The Tom and Chrissy didn't do well together. They would get into this big fight, and um, uh, Chrissy got a lot of furniture in the divorce, and, and she had all this furniture, and her and Charlie were living together, and they'd get in it, and she'd call me, and Jim and I would go get a trailer, and we'd go get all that old furniture, and we'd go take it to the storehouse, and we'd bring that little darling home, and before I could get dinner ready, her and Charlie was back together again. Now, they did that, I mean, you know, they uh, uh, did that about four or five times. And finally, the last time, you know, I was in the trouble. I know, God, she came home and she was horrible. Oh, and she was sullen and she was yucky. And, and I just, you know, I was in the bathtub one night and I said, God, I am so tired of that kid, I could die. 
It's not a kiss, it's 22 years old. And once again, that voice in my head said, if you let go, I'll take her. Uh, I had to back up a little bit. My sponsor, I had been crying to her about it, and she said to me, you know, Elwes, I didn't know Chrissy was mentally retarded. And I said, well, she's not. And he said, you treat her that way. Out of her. And God says, if you'll let go, I'll take her. Now, I remember that I got out of that tub, and I put a towel or a robe or something on her. I went in that living room, and I got down, and I walked in there to her, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, girl. I want you to live with Charlie. I want you to live with that Charlie. I want you to go to school. I want you to cook food. I don't care what you do because I'm setting you free. Now, they tell us in Al-Anon to let go with love. I just let go. Because I couldn't let go any other way. That's the best I could do. I remember she looked at me. She's got these big old eyes and, you know, and I just had to turn around and walk off. Well, Jim gave her back some credit cards and helped to get her an apartment and she got a job and she went through a healing thing with that and it wasn't long until she came over and said, um, Mother, I want to bring Charlie over tonight. And, uh, I said, okay. And Charlie came over and he said, uh, and he stayed that beard and, uh, cut his hair and she said, I know you don't like me. But uh, he said, uh, I really do love Christy, and uh, we want to get married. And I said, Charlie, I think Christy deserve each other. <laughs> well, Charlie and Christy got married. They were married almost 12 years. Out of that came two beautiful little girls that have brought more pleasure to Jim and I. See, Jim and I think we would just be these wonderful parents because we'd have the little kids, you know, and they would just be perfect if they're raising this program, you know that, and, and they just, you know, we would just, just do all these kind of things. And, and we have pretended, let's pretend with those little girls that they were ours. And, and the oldest little girl absolutely worshipped her grandfather. And the little girl, the youngest one did me, but I think she's going to desert and go over to him too. But anyway, uh, you know, they come and spend time with us and we wake up in the morning, you know, you know somebody's looking at you and you open and they're saying, oh, we just have such a good time with you. But Chris and Charlie live in the real world. Chrissy left Charlie about six months ago on Sunday and he went into the program on Monday. For a while, I thought, oh boy, I'm going to put the plug in the jug and never have another bad day. But that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. You know, you can live. Now, Charlie hasn't drank. The oldest little girl is seven, and she, he hasn't drank since she was born. But they've been living in untreated alcoholism. And I know what it means to live with a person in the garden. Charlie's been dried drunk, and I'm not taking his inventory. I do, you just know that. That's what happened. But that's what he said. I don't know what's going to happen next. That almost killed me. You know. Because once again, I wanted the picture. 
I'll warn you, I'm an erotic fixer. And God, when I get sick, please say sick, don't come unravel. You know, just stay sick. My mother had another bout with cancer. Uh, I lost my mother in the last January. Uh, it was a real experience because um, my mother was the first to die. I had lost grandparents that I had never lost. That before. And it was really experience. My mother was 80 years old, but my mother was not an old lady. My mother was a very young lady. And she died a father there and life support. I don't know what I think about that, but I'm like somebody I'm gonna have it. No life support that piece. It was a horrible thing. And it was a real experience. My father went to the doctor while my mother was in the hospital. And he got the results back a week after she died and he had cancer. How to get up that? Um, I don't know if those of you that are hospital people in the hospital field. I found out she's with the hell. <laughs> you know, it was like, what's going on? It was just like, you, know, you get the one tied away, then here it comes back. And she and I kind of went crazy with each other, and we didn't know what to do. Jim and I had never talked me or found fault with each other. But I was afraid we were going to do that, and he was too. I went to visit a little girl that God had given me, that's like a daughter to me, and take the water on the floor. We talk on the phone and we don't, you know. And I'm going to say this, and I don't, I don't mean it anyway, but I'm just saying it. You know, people think because of the fact that Jimmy goes all over the country and that he shares the message, and I go all over the country and I share the message, I think that the people that do that sometimes get put up way up here. And when their lives start coming apart, you know, people don't want to hear that. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. And yet the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is that we only have a daily reprieve. One day at a time. We only have one day, and that's today. Today. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. But I'm going to tell you something. God is walking us through. God is walking us through. And I guess that's the only power that we need to People love us. I'm going to tell you something. I grew 
the Black House and alcohol and in Fort Worth, Texas, is somebody praying for us every hour of the day. They don't know what the hell to do with it. <laughs> but they're praying for us. And once again, we're going to trust God. Because God is either everything or he's nothing. God is either everything or he's nothing. And I don't like it. I don't like to walk here. But I'll tell you one thing. It sure makes me hear and understand what you say when you come to me. And even in the midst of all of this, people still call and still say, oh, we got need your help. And Jim, I need your help. And what is, you know, what's going on? I love Jim Williams with all of my heart. And I know that he loves me. And I'm grateful. I couldn't be grateful for what I'm going through. I just started to say that. But I'm grateful for a loving God that says you don't have to have it made. You don't have to be perfect. You're just like everybody else. And you never get it made. You never get it made. You only have a daily reprieve hinged on your spiritual condition. So what does that tell you, folks? We mystify God somewhere along the line. I talked to Jim yesterday morning. And he seems to love his love. And he said, people in Wichita love me. And you tell them that I love them. And I'm grateful that I could come and I said, we talked. And I said, what are you going to say? You know, what are you going to tell? He said, I'm gonna, I don't know. So what are you going to say? I don't know. But then when he told me that you loved him and that you would love me, it took the fear away. It took the fear away of coming and saying to you, you know, we need your prayers. We need you to hold us up. We're walking in rough waters now. And we need you. We need you to carry a message to us. We need a healing. The same healing that we needed when we came in here. But I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love Al-Anon. And I'm grateful to God that I'm right here right now because you see nobody out there if I went out and told in fact over the over the hotel while ago several people walked up and wanted to oh, I forgot about having that on who are you going to speak you know what are you going to talk on I wonder what they would have said well I'm going to get up and tell them my life's gone to hell <laughs> but see you didn't you know I feel you loving me I feel you loving me. And for that I'm grateful. And I thank you once again for that I could do it. Thank you.